You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. Transformation. It's one of the most abused yet apt terms to describe the ongoing upheaval swirling throughout the marketing and advertising industries. Transformation, disruption, controlled chaos, call it what you want. Reality is that the dramatic changes that have been engulfing consumer behavior for the last few years and accelerated by the pandemic are forcing marketers to craft more innovative ways of making their brand stand out amid the clutter. Alan Adamson, co-founder of Metaforce.com, is a longtime marketing veteran who has worked with such major companies as Bank of America, Sony, and Verizon. His new book, Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do, Not Buy, to Gain Market Advantage, says marketers need to do a better job of, quote, zooming out on their audiences and take more of a hospitality approach toward customer relations. Take household appliance brand Dyson, opening up pop stores in New York City, or the auto mechanic shop that sends you a video from under the hood showing what precisely is wrong with your car and the best way to repair it. To compete in a post-digital age, marketers must provide their customers and prospects with a little more wow and a little less status quo. After all, as Adamson puts it, no one will ever share average. He now joins me to talk about how brand managers zoom out and other challenges facing marketers in order to bolster their value. Alan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. It's fun to be here. You bet. Alan, what do you mean when you talk about, quote, seeing the how, end quote, in the customer experience? And how does that differ from what CMOs and marketers are doing already when it comes to crafting and executing on the customer experience? It is really uh, hard for marketers to step back and say, is there more to marketing than just enhancing the product, which development or engineering does, and me being the master of efficiency and channel management and juggling all those levers to try to get through to the right customers at the right time. Too much tunnel vision on chasing eyeballs? There's a lot of pressure. And there's also what happens in a seven-year-old soccer game. Everyone's around the ball. So if a new thing comes around, be it TikTok or something else, you get people just focusing in on that new kid on the block. It can become the gravitational pull is tactical and how do you get to eyeballs? Whereas the opportunity in marketing is to step back and say, we are closest to the consumer. <laughs> we are watching the consumer. We should be leading not only what gets developed, but maybe the next innovation more than just hey, we got a great opportunity to uh, tap into this new shiny object. And is that to suggest that marketers have to get away from groupthink? Groupthink is really a big challenge. Any company you go to, you hear, I've been in the beer business for 20 years, and this is how we do things, And um, which is why often they get disrupted because somebody looks with fresh eyes and says, gee, you ever wonder why everyone in the beer business markets the same well? But it doesn't matter where you are. There is a set of this is how we do things. A challenge for marketers is to not get sucked into that bubble, but to say, mm -hmm. all right, that has worked for 20 years, 10 years, five years. Well, that may be the right way to go, but let's pause for a second. And can I look at the situation with fresh eyes? What do you think have been the permanent changes in marketing and consumer behaviors wrought by the pandemic? Once fundamental things get shaken up in your life, the need for travel, when you travel, how you interact with clients, what can be done digitally, what can be done virtually, 
once consumers start to reevaluate those fundamentals, they're more often to start thinking, gee, this is much better. What else can I do that requires me to just reinvent myself and say, do I really need to do that? That combined with the forever growth in online and digital, even people that were somewhat into online shopping had to transition their life to 100% online and they're not going back. It has accelerated things that were happening. It shook people up to begin to say, gee, maybe I shouldn't just go on autopilot on everything I do. Maybe I can, as a consumer, do things differently. And I understand this may be heresy in a podcast about marketing and advertising, but are consumers in this sort of pre-post pandemic, still lingering world we live in, are consumers taking on a more less is more mindset? One of the models the book looks through is that the rental model is growing. It used to be when you had a new child, you went and you bought lots of stuff and your apartment or your house became a jungle to get through. Now, lots of new companies have jumped up in the rental space. You can rent the bouncy seat. You can rent the crib. And more and more consumers are realizing that I may not need to own everything I get because there are other models out there. It reminded me, you know, when I, uh, during the pandemic, a tree came down and I had to buy a chainsaw and I've used it once. And if I had the option to have somebody drop off a chainsaw for a week, because uh, of course, a year later, when another storm happened, the thing didn't start. I didn't remember how to use it. So there are lots of things in your life that you don't want to own. And given the push for younger consumers and everyone to be a little more sustainable, rental market is happening in lots of areas. Does that suggest that brands or uh, legacy brands need to establish more partnerships that would lend itself to more of this sort of rental mindset? We recently had a meeting uh, without giving too many details, but lots of toy companies sell you toys. And so we were talking some concepts with eBay where they would partner with toy companies, be it Lego or Playmobil, saying you do this and eBay will then help you sell it to the next family, recondition it so that you know that when your kid is no longer playing with Play-Doh, it has a home that you can go to. Lots of new business partnerships are going to happen because consumers are looking at it. I need this, but maybe I don't need to own it or maybe I don't need this exact version of it. So a new, a new way to look at recycling. Exactly. Whether that will happen or not is not clear. But as people begin to look at everything in their life based on, yes, the pandemic didn't impact everything, but it caused people to change the way they live. Mm -hmm. And once that Pandora's box is open, it doesn't go back in. They say, well, gee, I wonder if I don't need to own this. I wonder if I could share this, buy this, or do you know rent it. How do you see generative AI having an impact on the customer experience? And how do marketers avoid getting caught in what could be multiple sand traps? The best you can hope for with an AI customer experience is it doesn't piss somebody off saying push one if you want to speak to a human, push two if you, you know, companies are driven by efficiency. Many are looking at customer care and saying, yes, it's a cost center. Could it be a real powerful marketing tool that other people can't beat? But you can also go to Apple. And if your phone breaks and you have to call customer services, you can have the option, of course, to see a human being <laughs> in a blue shirt. But even their online service has gotten better and better and better over the years. And Everyone talks about, is the new camera worth the money or is the new pixels worth it? Yes, that's important. But ultimately, what I think their biggest competitive advantage is doing stuff that the competitors can't see that well, which is making their customer care better and better. But it's an important point that we discussed earlier, Alan, in terms of integrating AI into marketing, when you would mention that no one shares average. 
if AI gives you an okay experience and it doesn't really piss you off and they solve it, yes, you're gonna they're gonna send you a replacement part or they're gonna take it back and you know, give you another item. You're okay, you're happy, but no one shares average. No one gets on social media and says, eh, I had an okay experience with uh, with Amazon. Most people only share extraordinary. If AI can only deliver average, use it for efficiency. As a marketer, you need to look for wows. You need to look for things that people want to share. Maybe AI will do that soon. It certainly does it when you're using some AI to do some information gathering. Boy, that was fast. I could have had an intern do that, but it would take them three weeks. And in three seconds, I got incredible SWOT analysis on ChatGBT. For customer care as a marketing touchpoint, you have to look at your journey and say, where can I really win? And I think it will be more efficient, but I don't think it will give marketers big wins in customer care. So in terms of big wins, when we're talking about generative AI, and despite the increasing sophistication of AI, if I'm to understand you correctly, Alan, is it that the wow, the delight is still going to come for the foreseeable future from humans, as it were? In customer care, it might, you know, there are other business models for other generations that realize that lots of consumers don't want to talk to other humans, particularly younger consumers. You talk to my kids, they prefer to use any other form of communication other than talking. I had a conversation with the founder of this boutique restaurant in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. He's a restaurateur. So you just text your order in or do the app. You don't have to go talk to a waiter. You don't have to go talk to somebody at a counter who asks you for a 10% tip just for taking your money. But you go right to a locker, you, your phone unlocks a locker, it's a little heated place, you get your dumplings and leave. AI can remove humans, and some people may not like humans, but for other generations or other issues, you have to be more selective. But if you're going to look to do the customer experience, figure out what do you have to tie on? You have to be efficient and clear and fast online. Mm -hmm. You don't want, no one wants to wait 20 minutes or an hour mm -hmm. to get a human when a real smart AI can solve it in 30 seconds. You have to be selective because one size never fits all. And to your point about Brooklyn dumplings, they may be going with the algorithm in terms of efficiency. I have my doubts that it was an algorithm that came up with the idea that, hey, let's go back to what the old automats used to look like and bring that nostalgia element in so we could appeal to the gray beards like you and me who remember the automat. And so one, they can appeal to your father's Oldsmobile. But younger kids will be finding more relevant. I don't have to like explain to the counter person that I want the dumplings. That, you know, you just go in there and get it. You right. can just live off your smartphone. The other thing it demonstrates, another thing the book, back to averages over. Part of success in marketing, as everyone knows, is great execution. Everyone has the same similarity in products, but great execution. And the more focused you are, the better your execution. So if you try to do everything, you're going to be average at everything. Mm -hmm. Same with marketers. You have to pick where can you get a real win? And so I think the other thing, Brooklyn Dumpling, without drilling too far, he said he could have sold a hundred types of food and had a menu from here to Sunday to be successful. I need to focus. And if I can make the best dumplings, then maybe one day I can sell something else. Focus is critical. It's all it has been, but even more so today where great execution matters. The other thing is that if they're trying to do 10 things in marketing, they'll be average at 10 things. And yeah. they're better off being great at one or two things. In your book, you write about seeing marketing through a different lens. Can you boil that down to maybe the top one or two focal points when it comes to marketing? Instead of just starting and looking at your product and say, how can I add a fragrance to it? Or how can I make the packaging better? Zoom out and say, what's going on around the product? What can I look at outside of the product or the category that might inspire 
some growth, maybe more innovation focus, as I said, for marketers. And one of them is explore virtual options. Everyone sort of knows that. More and more today, there are ways to enhance your product's experience virtually. The obvious ones have been done, whether it's doorbells that can see your packages being stolen from Amazon on your, on your doorstep. A simple example is for years, the way you did auto repair was you go to the service place, somebody comes out, we looked at your car, and I'm sorry, you need a new XYZ and you have to redo the ABC. And they say, and that's going to be 500 bucks. You trust them. You, you don't know. You weren't inside the car. I, you know, took the car, my car a couple of years ago to a car place. And I got a text saying, Alan, we've looked in your car. Let's show you what we found. And there's a video of them on the car saying, look at your brake lining. Here's it's worn down. You probably have another two weeks. So all of a sudden, instead of having somebody tell me I needed a new XYZ, a 30 second video explains to me and shows me, I may still not understand it, but I have much more confidence. And so a simple virtual thing is going to transform lots mm -hmm. of businesses. Mm -hmm. So this, the basic, how do you market auto service is not going to change, but adding that, let me crawl under the car with my camera and show you what's going on versus you getting into a jumpsuit and rolling under there. Lots of businesses have that option and they need to start thinking about that in their customer experience. In terms of thinking about those pockets without a lot of expenditures, correct? Exactly. The auto do, yes, they probably have to buy an app and they may not be able to use a smartphone, but it's pretty close to something any little service shop can take their smartphone and crawl into under the car and say, look at your, your brake lining or look at this or look at that. And let mm -hmm. me tell you why I think you need a new ABC. So virtual options, and it's going to go on and on. Certainly home repair, buying things. How many times have you tried to fix something reading an instruction and ended up with, gee, why is it? And if you can virtually do it, which I've done already when lots of bigger companies and tech are following that, they can tell you, well, you got the right tools. I'm loosing, it said clockwise, but you're going counterclockwise. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden you would have somebody, a coach behind you, and then you'll share that. Wow, I was able to do something at home. I never was able to do because I had the service guy on my smartphone sitting next to me. And in that sense, even though it's virtual, you are showing more good faith to the customer. Right. Exactly. Looking beyond saying, yes, the product lasts forever and you can always return it. And another big lens is everyone talks about, oh, we're customer centric. We care about it. We know what our customer, but customer centric for many marketers is I read the research report. <laughs> I've been to a couple of quality, really getting into customer. And ultimately, instead of seeing customer centric as a cost center or what do we have to do to prevent people from being upset? Could you see like a concierge? When you go to a great concierge and you said, can I get a dinner reservation for you? Oftentimes they say, well, let me check open table. Well, you don't need that type of help. But if they look at you and say, look, Matthew, you look really stressed. Your kids are tired. I think what you should do is do this instead of a restaurant, a little bit more problem solving and observing, not just you ask for a restaurant. And Alan, as we head into a short break, what are the new levers in a post-digital age? When marketers talk about connection, when marketers talk about providing their customers with a delightful experience, how do marketers and brands reimagine customer experience when a lot of companies, let's be frank, can't even get their call centers right? It's a real challenge. The theory, again, is easy. Every marketer knows you map the customer journey and figure out how you're playing at every touch point. As you get away from the product, control of those touch points, call centers or sales help or return, you know, whatever the becomes more complicated. 
the strategy is not to try to do everything averagely. Say, what touch points are really holding you back? If you don't fix this, nothing else matters. If you don't fix returns or whatever the, the, the pain point, but you can't win at that because everyone does that. Then look at other touch points and say, where can I really win and do something that will be above average and extraordinary? And people say, wow, that was an amazing blank, blank, blank. It's going to be away from the unboxing experience and turning on the product and it working. So do that. The other important thing is to not just look at the existing customer journey. Force yourself to say, everyone is playing at these touch points. Where else can I create a new customer touch point? Lots of marketers are doing this. Dyson a couple of years ago set up instant pop-up hair salons in places in Manhattan. You could go get a blowout using the new expensive Dyson hairdryer. And again, that didn't exist, but they realized for their business giving customers an experience beyond seeing it on a box at Target was going to be critical to them understanding that paying mm -hmm. this much money for a hairdryer, they could get for 10 times less. And so they had to create new touch points. And I'm really encouraging marketers to say, there's so much clutter out there. If a new touch point has to be done, you have to pick something you can execute. And they did a great job because not only was the setting right, but they had their best hairstylists there and people were taking pictures, but lots of people are doing that. I encourage marketers not to just saying, well, here's how we do things at Target and here's how we do things at Walmart. Finding new ways to enhance that experience is going to be critical. Stay with us. There's more to come. We now take a break for a brief message regarding Greater Good magazine. Greater Good covers a wide array of brands and organizations that are looking to do good for humanity. Stories run the gamut. From a program sponsored by Chipotle to reduce food insecurity, to the eco-initiatives of the U.S. Postal Service, to the New York Islanders providing funding for canines to become guide dogs. The publication is designed to inspire marketers along with the real-world intelligence they need to drive growth and boost their value. Find the publication at www.ana.net slash champions of greater good. Welcome back. I'm speaking with branding expert Alan Adamson co-founder of marketing agency Metaforce.com and author of the recently released Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do, Not Buy, to Gain Market Advantage. Alan, what are brands missing in this transformation being bandied about? What is the transformation myth? And is this just an opportunity for marketers to be cocktail party compliant and nothing more? As you said, transformation other than synergy is probably the most overused word in, in marketing. As we started the conversation, this disruption that happened during the pandemic has opened up lots of opportunities. Yes, you should be looking at new ways beyond the product, different touch points, different parts of the market. It's still really hard to do because you need to be sure your company can execute these things well. Otherwise, it's better not to do it. You can do more, invest a lot of money and not succeed. Lots of companies have done that. Level one is saying, start looking there. But then be really judicious and prudent about if we're going to do something different in customer care, if we're going to do something different in the sales process, if we're going to take a virtual look, can you execute it well? I'm a big believer in starting small, learning, iterating. One of the big challenges in transformation, the biggest, is people don't start soon enough. The only time people, companies really start transforming is when sales start dropping and they're already you know, letting people go. And if you're under that sort of gun, sales are dropping and you have to do something fast, the likelihood of you doing it right are really slim. You're losing talent. You're putting out fires. You're panicking. You know, management is panicking. Oh, my God, another bad quarter. The best time to think about transformation 
is when things are going great and you have the other challenge, which I've lived through and you've lived through and me, you know, it ain't broke, don't fix it. We had a phenomenal year last year. It's working. Let's call the same play. That's the best time to start worrying about change. Starting now when your business is great is the best time to start thinking about transforming. You know, the movie theaters waited till the pandemic to think about reinventing themselves. Some reinvented themselves earlier with better chairs and better food service. By the time pandemic came and people invested in big screens and upgraded their sound system, they should have been transforming themselves, easy to say now, well before the pandemic. Yep. They wouldn't have survived the pandemic any better, but they'd come out in a better place. Now to do it, when people have already gotten in the habit of getting used to the couch and you know have invested in a 90,000 inch home screen, which the kids are also still watching the uh, you know their smartphone instead of looking at the big screen. It's going to be too hard. Barbie Hammer is not going to rescue the movie theaters. Just to backtrack for a moment, Alan, in terms of meaningful change, how do marketers jettison this inside-out mindset that I believe plagues marketers and switch to a, quote, culture-in mindset? It's hard for marketers to see what's happening around them because they are overscheduled and and then back-to-back meetings. When I spoke to Facebook a couple of years back, they had a policy that if you were on an innovation team, you could get out of 20 meetings that everyone had to go to on how to do something that was important, but not mission critical. Mm-hmm. And marketers, they could fill up their day just keeping the trains running, if people remember what a train is. There's so much stuff that you get sucked into that world. So how do you do it? Old story, my first job uh, out of business school in advertising I went through all the interviews at Ogilvy. The CEO said, oh, you've done really well. And I'm all set to answer a question on copy strategy or market research or consumer insights. And the CEO looks at me and says, Alan, um, can you tell me about the last book you've read, show you've been to, and movie you went to? Mm-hmm. And what did you learn? And what did you find surprising? Completely out of context. I, you know, I struggled to answer that question because I was so hardwired to talk about marketing tactics. Oh, and afterwards I said, so why did you ask me that question? And he said, well, back in those days, we want our people at the agency to be our clients' eyes and ears, to see Mm -hmm. culture, to see trends, to travel, to read things that are out of the bubble, to bring those to our clients who are too busy to see that. And I think it's only gotten worse. The ability to, you know, ask ChatGBT something as opposed to going to a a mall and walking the mall has ruined us. And the, the final thing is... Groupthink is awful. You go to companies and they tend to still hire everyone here. We got an MBA from this school and mm-hmm. you know everyone's yep. feeling great. We're, and the only thing for sure is that they are continuing to narrow the focus because no matter how smart everyone is and got the great MBA from X school or worked at this company and learned marketing here, seeing the how is about zooming out. You can't do that if everyone is hardwired to do the same thing. Getting diversity on the team, encouraging disagreement, encouraging having the courage to say, Matthew, you're my boss. And let me tell you, I know you've done this for years. I don't think that's the right idea. And it's hard to do that, but it's also hard to see that. When you say things are getting worse, Alan, a lot of these legacy brands, they're ripe to be disrupted by a competitor. But looking at it from the vantage point of the legacy marketer, how do legacy companies deploy a disruptive mentality? And is it fair to compare legacy brands with the Ubers and the Airbnbs, which are much flatter organizations born of the digital age? Or am I being naive 
And that's simply no excuse for legacy brands these days. It's still really hard uh, just because everything you do that's innovative or new by definition is going to be less profitable than your main game, which has been so optimized. Structurally, it's really hard to do. And I'm also not a believer in saying, well, you know, big companies should try to innovate because attracting the right talent is hard, but then they just have to start soon enough and they have to be ready to fail as often as entrepreneurs. Everyone hears about the successful entrepreneurs. I have the fun of doing time to coach entrepreneurial students at the Stern School at NYU. Yeah, over the 20 groups I meet with over a semester, 19 will fail, at least initially. It's a challenge to take that type of risk. But I do think part of it is getting companies to just force themselves to see and be more current. Because inside a company, you lose track of time and reality, no matter how much you try. HBO had a program years ago that I found fascinating. Typical company hires interns, and they give the intern to the most junior person, and the intern sits there and collects paperclips. Or maybe does a piece of research. At HBO back in those days, they gave the C-suite interns and they said, look, we want you to hang out with these kids for the summer. You're going to learn from them. Their job is not for you to teach them. We want them to teach you how younger people are shopping, how younger people are living. That is a really important example of the challenge you have in a company is how do you make sure that everyone is seeing the same thing and believing it? But vis-a-vis new talent, Alan, more and more widespread adoption of reverse mentoring? Yes, that was just one program at HBO, but the principle is interesting. And most companies put their junior people in the bullpen. And how do you get them out of the bullpen and being a catalyst in the company as opposed to saying, well, this person is going to learn and the way they're going to learn is I'm going to... And that's important too. It has to be more symbiotic. And what we've seen is companies that drive that new culture up and around the company tend to be more able to transform than companies that follow the three years here, two years here. And by the time you get to be a director, you've already been in the bubble for you know 15 years and you've learned our business. We haven't learned from you. Is success for CMOs increasingly contingent on the imagination of their CEO? Ultimately, when I, we look at it, as you do, um, CMOs that have done well, it's never been in a silo. They had the confidence of forgetting the CEO, the entire leadership team wanted to do this and didn't see marketing as just get me some more customers, let's cut down on our media spend and we need to build share. Yes, that's mission one. (laughs) They were open to looking at marketing differently. I had a conversation for the book with then CMO of Ford, Susie Daring, and she talked about how they were trying to reimagine the car purchase and ownership experience at Ford and how different the auto industry is than others. She had the CEO support, but even there, it's really hard to take a a more of a hospitality approach. How would you treat customers other than the way this is a way we do in the auto business? We don't own the dealerships. It's an independent business. And so there are a hundred reasons and change is not easy. Because they're mm-hmm. profitable, it's working, it ain't broken, yet consumers are getting a little, little more and more crankier. And somebody, probably not one of the big companies, just like not one of the big companies disrupted on electric, is going to come in and say, is there a new way to service cars that maybe going to a dealership and dropping your car off and then walking to the bus stop, it may not be the best way to do it. Maybe they can fix it in your garage from now on, which of course some companies are doing. Once people got used to that, you can't go back to the alternative. 
So in a sense, there, there are still too many legacy companies out there who are just waiting for their lunch to be eaten. Well, it's hard because they're not changing when things are good. They're mm -hmm. not investing. Everyone talks about, well, we waited too long. The number one reason companies fail to shift is because not only do they wait too long, but growth starts to taper off. And the best talent says, this place is not happening anymore. Management doesn't want to change. I want to change. And the talent leaves before the sky really falls. And then once mm -hmm. lots of your young talent or better talent is left, then you have to shift. Then it's a bigger challenge than just what do we do? Then what assets do we have to make it happen? So it requires really being super sensitive to say, we want a culture here of realizing that the only thing for sure is change. And we better be built for change, not wait for change and then have a SWAT team go in and do an analysis and say, here's our five-step program to save the blank brand. As we start to wrap up, Alan, talking more holistically for marketers, changing their mindset, improving their focus on what's truly important, how do marketers break out of the product-based mindset? And is it more having the will than anything else? How do they afford to make that shift? And how do they communicate that to the C-suite? The good news is the marketers are the ones closest to the customer. They have spent more time in focus groups and walking them all than anyone else in the company. They are trained in understanding consumer insight and what an insight can do and understanding people's internal GPS. They just have to say, that's a really important part of my job. I need to be leading change, leading innovation and not get sucked in completely into operation and making it happen. Because lots of people talk, the CMO job is a mile wide. And if you try to do everything the CMO needs to do now, from being a data scientist to running a dashboard, yeah. it's really hard. And now they need to say, make sure you win on the seeing the customer, seeing how people are living. Many people can do the back end, but truly marketers are the best trained people to be the company's GPS and long-term radar. Deliver on that and then find ways to make everything else happen because you can't do it one or the other. But if you don't do that, no one else in the company can see change better than the marketer. And we'll have to leave it there. Branding expert Alan Adamson, co-founder of marketing agency Metaforce.com and author of the recently released Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do, Not Buy, to Gain Market Advantage. Thanks again, Alan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Matthew. To learn more about seeing the how, transforming what people do, not buy to gain market advantage, go to Amazon.com. Be sure to tune in next time when I welcome Robert Tass and Ed C., partners at McKinsey, to talk about their new report showing the growing divide between CEOs and CMOs and how to remedy the situation. If you would like to recommend a guest or topic for a future episode, please email me at mschwartz at ana.net. And be sure to subscribe to Champions of Growth wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.